Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing U2 Live, The Early Days. That's the energy, that's the hysteria, that's the hype. <laughs> Why are you finding that so amusing? It's trite. What? It is trite. I like that song. Bono climbs hundreds of feet. Hello and welcome to a brand new season of Review 2 and a brand new format for Review 2. My name's Tyler, sat across from me is Johnny. Say hello, Johnny. Hello. We are two bespectacled U2 fans. We just love talking about that too. And from now on, we'll be talking about the early days of the U2 live shows. Today we're going to be talking about U2 Live at the Marquee Club in London 1980. It was released under the title Another Time, Another Place as part of a U2.com subscriber release. Yeah, so U2, I would argue, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, Tyler, are a live act, essentially. And I know it sounds like a kind of stupid thing to say, or a blindingly obvious thing to say, but they made their reputation by being not having great hit singles, early on this is, and not by being the slickest around or the best musicians, but by being a compelling and interesting live band. And that's, I think, what we're going to be talking about throughout this whole season, really. Uh, well, to clarify your point, um, How dare the, you? I have a quote from Bono. Oh, man himself. Uh, uh, Bono, so this is uh, an interview from actually 1981. So, little, you know. Early days. Yeah, it's still the early days. Uh, we are we are a performance band. We use the audience on two levels, uh, and on the album on Boy, we have a living room sound. Now tonight, it's the other side of you two, a very important side to you two. The aggression, what's inside of us, comes out. Hmm. And that is Bono talking about what a, an early U two live gig was like, and yeah, it is. If you've not heard this live show. It is recorded at the Marquee Club in London, and you'll be able to find it online. I'm sure it's on YouTube and other outlets. It's on SoundCloud as well. Um, okay, I, I didn't find it on SoundCloud. but I think it's incomplete, but it is on there. Right. Well, it's only 10 tracks. It's only 10 tracks. But it's really raw in front of a capacity sold-out crowd of 900. But this, this wasn't the only show they played at the Marquee Club. They... In the, in the space of about, I'd say, two months, they played six shows there. Uh, and this was all on the boy tour. So, you know, kind of you know making a little home for themselves. But they're an Irish band, and they were very staunchly Irish. They were trying to be almost a positive Irish band. Um, they, they, I think they felt like Irish bands up until this point had a certain reputation, and they, they wanted to come in and, and rewrite what an Irish band was all about. Hmm. I've never really considered it as an Irish band, which obviously they are. I I see this more in the context of the aftermath of punk, basically, and what do you do once the initial spark and energy's gone out of punk? Yeah. You know, what do you do with this? You can't go back to classic dinosaur rock, but you it's a bit you're a bit stuck with what you do. And what you two did was deliver, I would say, a real punk energy without necessarily just using the same kind of grizzled power chord aesthetic, which I like, but would have been dull, frankly. But there is a nationality quality to it. I mean, in those early interviews, there's quite a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, they don't stop talking about being Irish. And they, 
It's something that they do get asked about. It's a huge part of their identity at that point. Yeah. Um, and and I I found it really interesting that, that you know they're coming over to London. That's for them at this point international. You know, not as international as they would go a few months later, but. Uh, you know, coming over to London must have been a daunting thing. That must have been the first step. If you can, if I can make it in Dublin, you know, great. If I can make it in London, you know, what's next? Yeah. Um. So it's this is such an interesting period for me to go back to. Um. Should we talk a little bit about the stats of the gig? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so this is uh the twenty ninth of September. 1980. When did Boy come out? Was Boy September or October? I, th- I thought it was October, like everything significant that happens in U2's <laughs> calendar. I, I'm, I'm thinking it's October. So, if that if it is October, then this this gig is before the album came out. And we have to check this. Fact. Yeah, we do have to check this. But my point is that the crowd, once you listen to this uh, this show, the crowd are going crazy. It's it is like a po- a punk crowd. Yeah. You don't get like crowds are quite mild mannered. Twentieth of October, nineteen eighty, is when Boy was released. Right. So this was the twenty ninth of September, nineteen eighty. This is this is pre Boy. Hmm. Although they did have a couple of um, they did have a couple of releases, but not not the official album. If that's if that's the case. Yeah, they released quite a lot of singles early on, haven't they? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got the whole U two three um thing, which has um got kind of not as as good or powerful versions of Out of Control on it and you know when I will follow in that I'm hoping I'm correct though with the, with the... yeah there's I will uh, there's Out of Control I will follow and maybe Boy Girl it can't have been Boy Girl surely right get my get, phone back out get that phone back out <laughs> some might suggest that we should have done this beforehand uh, but we'll have a look now uh, Tyler do you want to tell an amusing anecdote or something to, <laughs> to fill in the time while I'm doing this Nope. Right, good. Uh, out of control <laughs> stories for boys and boy girl. Uh, Who was boy girl? That's ridiculous. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about the boy tour. The tour started on the sixth of September, nineteen eighty, and ended on the 9th of June, nineteen eighty-one. It had five legs. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. Uh, uh, it had five legs. Amusing yourself by imagining <laughs> yeah. a tour with legs. And one hundred and fifty-seven shows. Yep. That seems quite a lot. It's a lot for a young band, but they were they were a hungry band, you know. Yeah. So we're not going to go track by track today because we'd just end up, you know, retreading what we'd already said about certain songs. What we we're just going to talk about the show, how it sounds, you know, the, the feel of it, how it differs from, you know, at this point, what's to come. Uh, but you two at this point um, have burst out of the Irish scene. And they're taking the tentative first steps to an international market with a burning desire, an overreaching passion. Um, they take this first album on tour. Now, anything could have gone wrong at this point. Hmm. It, this is this is make or break time for you two, surely. Yeah, and they're very um, they're very high octane um, set of performance as well, particularly Bono. So things do go wrong, you know. Um, and there's concerns a lot of the time about what what Bono's up to, as we'll see, as we talk a bit more about about their early kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, this was a, this was a risk, a financial risk. Obviously, up until, well, I don't know when when you'd say when they became really financially solvent, but you two surprisingly took a long time to become 
and you know a really profitable, stable business model. So there's a lot of financial I think risk it was here. After war, that, yeah. that they got to the, that point. Um, the the thing. It's inter- interesting you say that business model, because I've seen a couple of interviews with Bono from from those first three years, where Bono talks about the U two as a as an organization or as a business, where you know anyone they hire, be it a manager, you know anyone in production, hmm. they they believe them to be the absolute best because they have this vision of what U two. You know, should be so that a lot of the time they would go over the friends, which yep. really surprised me about you two actually knowing how much they collaborate with the friends over the years. They what they wanted the best people around to sustain this. Yeah. They they thought, what, okay, well we've got this now. There is there's going to be a lot of people trying to take this away. We need to surround ourselves with the absolute best people, the best marketers, the best artists, the best management, and also very hardworking people as well. Um, I mean, some of my research for this um comes from a book called unforgettable fire by Eamon dunphy and he talks about how they would get people who were used to the fact that working with you two meant incredibly hard graft you know putting in a shift doing a huge amount of um taking a lot of time and a lot of care about all of the sound production you know they would turn up do check the sound move things around they would ask questions they would be trying to learn all the time but also not just accepting that she sound check that she sound deal with it they would be actually changing things and working really really hard on it so i think that's quite important yeah but my my surprise was just that they would like that so early yeah because obviously when you look at you two now you can't see it as anything else but you know a, a, this huge big business juggernaut yeah but you know, for twenty-year-old guys, you know, thinking, you know, so clearly about this is our, this is our dream, this is our passion. Mm. We don't want anybody to take away, take this away from us. Let's em- employ all the best people. You know, that's a very mature attitude, actually, a very calculated attitude as well. But we well, don't want it to fail, do you? So no, absolutely not. And McGinnis seems like a very shrewd um, manager at this particular time as well. But. All this can't come cheap. So literally anything they make, they must be mm. putting straight back into the band. Yeah. So it's no wonder that it took three, four years for them to make any money. Uh, and I think that's that's why you get so much passion in a U2 gig. And this is one of the, the most passionate uh, gigs I've ever heard U2 play. Yeah. All of the... Larry, throughout this record, is... He's hitting those drums so hard. And and I think the first time I listened to this, I sent you a text saying you have to listen to this. Yeah. It it just sounds so much unlike you two in a way. There's a there's a lack of polish yeah. on, on this record in general. Apart from my uh probably my favourite song on this which which strangely enough, I considering I ripped this song apart. On when we reviewed Boy and Cat Dub to Into the Heart, yep. that that's the 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 song of the show at this point for me. Yeah, it it just it sounds so so good. I'm just I'm just looking at my notes. Let's put it's the best, the most polished song. Um, it's very very intense as well. Um, yeah, but it's this. still got that youthful punky kind of 
visceral energy to it. You can you can really feel it. You can you can feel that teenage angst. Yeah. The way that, the way they play it, and the, again, the crowd play no small part in this. They 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 might as well be on stage with them. They they have a a huge role to play in this recording. The fact that you can hear them so clearly, and the chanting and the roadie. Yeah. Uh, compare that to a, a U2 gig these days, you know. And I I I, I don't want to bring this to the fat woman with the big nose that you know. Right, right. <laughs> she, last, when you initially complained about this woman on another episode, she had a big nose apparently, which wasn't relevant. And now apparently she's fat as well. What is going on? <laughs> You're just adding more things to this weird caricature of this woman. She has become more of a caricature in my in my mind, but I I just she really she didn't ruin the gig for me. I I just would have rather she wasn't there. Great. Okay. Well, so you're saying basically that fans don't have as much energy and enthusiasm these days. I I, I think guaranteed. Yeah. It's a different crowd as well. I mean, most these people watching this hungry new young band are all going to be you know what early. Uh, teens or early 20s maybe uh, yeah so i mean that's the energy that's the hysteria that's the hype yeah yeah um i wonder if we'll get any feedback about that maybe um i've got some got some history on that actually um we'll, we'll save that for a bit um anyway the point is that there's a lot more youth and energy in that crowd so maybe that's why it comes across and i'm sure i'm sure they've also faded up the crowd so you can get that intensity at this yeah. early stage, which is fine. That makes sense. I imagine tickets would have been really cheap at this point as well. Yeah. Like you know, when you when you start hiking those those prices up, you, you're going to get a different crowd. Yeah. You know, I think I think actually we probably got a very middle class crowd when we saw songs of ex- uh, innocence. Well, live music is a middle class pursuit these days. I mean, look at Glastonbury. I mean, it's it's outrageous. Music used to be for the people. Yeah. No, it's for the bankers. It is. Oh, politics. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, if uh, what what else I said about um, Anka uh, Dub, but I erroneously put it in a day without me. Great. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we go? Why don't we go from um the start of the of, of the gig? All right. Yeah. They open with the ocean. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think? This is a slightly odd opener because I know they did do this frequently. It was a very common opener, and I've got—I can see the logic behind it, but I want to see what you think about it. So, is this a good opener? No. Ooh. Um. And and it's it's really surprising. Well, it's not surprising because they they have to learn stagecraft and they have to learn how to put a set list together. Hmm. Um. But I I will follow would have been a much better yep. way to kick off. Electrico would have been a good way to kick off. I think Electrico needs to be a bit deeper, to be honest, because it's such a big song. Um, I'd love to see Out of Control start a gig. Yeah, that'd be amazing. You know, and I understand why it's the last track here. Yeah. But you know that those those first few chords, the <laughs> that. Yeah, just like that. Or, or guitar sounds to that effect. Yeah. So. Um, well, I think the logic behind starting with the ocean. This is what I would would be going through my head if I was doing um, this show. You want to make sure that your instruments sound good. You know, obviously you've done sound check first, but you want to be confident in them. And the ocean is a nice way to kind of just get comfortable on stage without going hell for leather straight into your first song. So it's a nice way to arrive. But it is a bit. It is a bit strange. And then it's ocean into eleven o'clock TikTok. Which a very popular song, 
in um, U2's kind of early canon, a fan favourite, certainly one of my favourite um, songs. Annoying that it's not on Boy, to be honest. Um, but those are odd choices to begin. The Ocean is a slow song, and 11 O'Clock TikTok is sort of a stuttering kind of song in its, in its rhythm. It's not really... It's not really fast. So, yeah, I Will Follow would seem to be the natural opener. Yeah, I... I it's got a really think, long I intro ta- as well. I think I take your point, you know, of feeling comfortable with what you're playing and getting, you know, the mic set up. Because although we've said, like, they would they would surround themselves with the absolute best people they could, hmm. there's probably a limit on that, the best people they could afford. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, there's... As you two recordings go, this is amateur hour. This is... This is the the most low tech you're ever going to hear you two play. Well, without bootlegs, I mean, obviously there's much worse recordings of of them in bootleg kind of format. Well, that's something else that I was thinking. Of. I was thinking of how bad uh, trash, you know, trash trampoline and the party girl mm. sounded on the best of when they released it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's amazing to me that this sounds so much better than that, considering that is a song recorded in a studio. But I think it's that it's that thing that Bonner was saying before. It sounds like it was recorded in the living room. It was just a small studio space, really. So you, and you can hear that reflected. You're not getting the the type of scale that you'll get enabled by recording at Slane Castle or the places, the other places, basically that have better equipment. So, what were the highlights for you listening to this, Johnny? Well, I mean, it's difficult because. We've obviously heard a lot of these songs, um, actually not a lot of these songs, we've heard some of these songs a lot of times, so I Will Follow, fantastic long introduction, I really enjoyed that, um, and that's a song that, to be honest, much as I love it, I've heard it so many times, there can only be that much variation on it, so this was great as an early, really early live version of that. Electrico was also a big highlight for me, um, that possibly has been my favourite U2 song that I've ever heard live, as in the performance. Um, There's not... a really weird bit on this, where yeah. it, it's, I, I want to call it a bass solo, but it's not really a bass solo, it's just they, they play through, I don't know if Bono doesn't come in on time, or if he's doing something with the crowd, uh, but they, it's mainly Adam just keeps playing. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Larry, and I don't really know what's happening there, but it seems quite odd and elongated right in the middle of the song. Mm. Well, I've got a guess that this will be Bono getting up to his usual antics at this particular point in Electric Co, where he would very, very frequently... But what's Edge doing? <laughs> he's making um, small guitar noises, isn't he? I mean, he's the problem is you've got to create that dynamic where it gets quieter and then they can build it back up again. So I think Edge, if, he, if he's quiet, it's because he, when he comes back in, you know, with the, you know if you don't know Electric Co a bit, it's it can really land properly um but it's interesting that because this is a song that allows bono the time to start climbing bits of scaffolding so you can see this on youtube bono going absolutely wild during this this song um you know throwing the mic around the stage um climbing up scaffolding it seems to be something that he's very keen on doing and something that worried a lot of the management um a lot particularly at the us festival in 1983 yeah um which is on youtube you can look it up i think the quickest way to do that is i think it's something like war in the usa or something like that if you put that in you'll find it yeah you showed me this and it was it's queasy it's kind of uncomfortable to watch it was yeah. in the i think it's mainly in the early 80s maybe you know maybe earlier than that but it's 1983 no, I know that, oh, but like, there was a trend from musicians, you know, to, to climb up bits of, you know, staging and, and scaffold, and that 
is very different than doing that now in this day and age. Because if you did it in this day and age, it would be a harness. The yeah. pretty much Sterling. anything you see in a live show is predetermined. You know, it's 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 been you know negotiated with the management and agreed on. Because it's things like insurance and all that stuff. Yep. But in the early eighties and and before that time, maybe even a little bit after. You didn't need all those insurances and everything like that. It just it hadn't got to that point yet. No. So it wasn't a strange sight to see somebody like you know a lead singer climbing up some scaffolding. But at the US Festival, Bono climbs hundreds of feet. I don't know if it's hundreds of feet. It's hundreds. Of feet. <laughs> I don't think it's hundreds. It's uh, six stories high. Is how how much it is. <laughs> hundreds of feet. Even the you know. The uh, Mount Everest, you know, looked up at Bono and went, "Oh God, that's high." Yeah. So a few things: <laughs> a Mount Everest is not called the Mount Everest, and B, it's in the Himalayas, so it's definitely not got the voice of Billy Connolly. Um, oh, do you not think so? No. Well, I don't. I don't think that sounds like Billy Connolly anymore either. Um, I've actually got a quote from Bono somewhere about the um, US Festival. Yeah, go on. Um, I have no idea where it was. Oh, yeah, here it is. Wait, Bono couldn't find the US Festival. <laughs> 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 when you two played the US Festival, I climbed to the very top of the stage. It was like hundreds of feet up, so clarified by Bono. Okay. Uh, and I walked across the top of uh, top of it on the canvas, and the canvas ripped. God, I don't know who that person is climbing up there, because I'm afraid of heights anyway. You know, the adrenaline is a drug, and you just go right or wrong, really. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's Bono, like on his. He, I mean, he, he, he on, in all seriousness, he could have died that day. Yeah. The canopy started ripping, and you can't really see what's going on. But as is reported in in various kind of sources, um, he just had to sort of quickly. He was going to cross the whole canopy to go on the other, the opposite side to where he climbed up, but it started to rip, and he basically just had to sort of crawl back along the scaffolding, and before he fell down, really. Yeah, it's a cool rock moment. Until that, uh, you know, he pushed, he went one too far. Yeah. But I've always thought the 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 climbing up and the you know look at me, I'm really high. Mm. Doesn't like it, it, all that is lost as soon as you have to watch someone slowly climb down scaffolding it again. It does take a while, doesn't it? Although it is exciting. I think he does manage to sell that whole thing by throwing the flag into the crowd, and it does look amazing when he does that. Um, although flagrant disregard for safety there, because he's throwing a flag hundred, literally hundreds of feet down hundreds of feet, yeah. onto a fan's head. <laughs> so, I mean, that wouldn't have been good. And the the band were not happy about this either. I mean, obviously you're going to be worried about that. Um, McGuinness, I think that's who uh, claps Bono on the back um, and sort of pats him on the back as he comes off, but he wasn't happy. And the tour manager was very, very unhappy about this. Um, so the tour manager, um, Dennis Sheehan, um, he, sorry, I'm probably saying that wrong, Sheehan, Sheehan, he encounters Bono afterwards in the in the dressing room and says, you can't ever do that because he had visions of, you know, Ali having to basically, you know, wheel Bono around for the rest of his life because he's done something really risky and stupid. And also, I mean, it's got to be said, put lots of people's um, jobs at risk as well. Yeah. I mean, the people relying on them. The, I mean, that's not as important as someone's safety, but it is an issue and it, it doesn't have to be done. Um, so just one other thing, another uh, incident of Bono's uh, climbing antics before we get back to um, Marquis. In, um, in Vancouver, Bono assumed there was um, solid scaffolding when he was climbing. What year is this? Uh, so 
I don't know. It's just around this time, though. I mean, okay. it's similar, similar. So er, early days, first three albums. Yeah, within. Yeah. I think this was in, within months of the Us Festival um, incident, and you can see Bono does climb um, in a different. Uh, you can see different concert footage around this time of him climbing up. I think it's in Germany. He's climbing up the side of the stage in a very similar way. He doesn't manage to get right up to the top, but Bono is basically just about to fall twenty feet onto concrete, and um, Steve Iredale had to grab him by his belt and literally like haul Bono back kind of in a quite an undignified manner. So it's an, another occasion where Bono's very close to falling literally hundreds of feet, you know, and splatting all over the floor. So yeah, it's, it's an exciting Bono uh, at this particular time, but also a, a dangerous Bono. Yeah. Um... And one who takes risks as we'll see, I guess when we, uh, when we quickly cover uh, live aid in a few episodes. Yeah. Um, but you can see that the band are really annoyed. At Bono yeah. every time he does, and, and to the point where in that US video we actually began to feel sorry for Bono. We we we'd gone through it from a point of seeing how stupid it was and kind of being fearful for him, mm. but then when he you know when the, there's that little bit where you, the cameras fall them backstage and the the band are all ignoring Bono. Yeah, you, and he looks embarrassed. Yeah, and, that and, is and, a you really know, embarrassing you don't, bit. You, you, these are the days before the big Bono character that we'd get. For, you know, starting in the nineties. So you just see this young guy, 21, you know, years old maybe, mm. who's really, you know, thinks he's pissed everybody off basically. Well, he had. Um, so but but he, he did look, <laughs> he kind of looked broken-hearted and so crestfallen, and I, I really felt sorry for him. It's yeah. really weird to see uh, a young you too, because mm. I feel almost maternal over them. When I see things like that, because well, they're younger than us, though. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I, I really, I feel like I know them now, mm. but I'm, I'm so used to them being older and, you know, being, you know, people of, you know, you know, the certain gravitas. They, yeah, they inspire me, and you know, I, I look up to certain members of you two. Um, I don't know which one I don't. <laughs> I was going to say. But, um, they're all taller than you, aren't they? But to see them young, you know, like when I see young, you know, twenty, twenty-year-olds, twenty-one, twenty-two-year-olds now. I kind of like, you know, I feel, I do feel sorry for them, uh, and I, and I don't know, I don't really know why this is where this has come from, but I, I, I kind of I, I pity them a little bit. I, yeah. I wish, I feel like you know, in life you're just waiting for somebody to tell you, you know, whisper in your ear and go, you know, what you're supposed to do this, not that. Um, and I and, and I feel like there's a lot of kids that don't know where they're going, and that's how I feel about you too at that mm. point. So I feel, re- I do feel really bad for Bono at that point. Yeah, but it must be a really odd mixture of feelings for him as well because he must have so much adrenaline. Yeah. Inside, not just from the gig, but from that enormous climb. Well, it's the ultimate high. He th- he thinks he's just done a really great thing. Yeah. You know, it like created this huge rock moment, and then. And he had to be fair. It's not like the crowd didn't go absolutely wild for it, which they did. Well, no, it's thirty-seven years later, and we're still talking about it. Yeah. So that that's the kind of thing. But you do. You do begin to feel sorry for for a young you too, which is a really th- a really strange thing to say. I just my sympathy, to be honest, as someone who is probably a bit more edge in my um in my whole kind of attitude, I would just be furious, to be honest, at, at that kind of thing. I would be I would be angry at the the risk that was being taken. I'd also be thinking we need to finish this song, to be honest. You know, I need to actually get on with it. And you can tell they're not. Um, as soon as Bono is literally on the stage, boom, done. You know, one chord, they finish. <laughs> they're not gonna do a, a yay Bono's back. Let's carry this on for a bit longer. So yeah, I mean, 
Bono's live antics though really do um I think they they demonstrate what we were saying before about this being kind of punk in energy if not in execution, you know. And it, it really does have that the the early stuff has that vitality. What's your highlight from this um from this gig at the marquee? Uh as as I've mentioned, uh Ancat dub into into the heart. Hmm. Uh, and that version of Out of Control just I love it. Yeah. I, I really love it. Um, I, I think Larry Mullen Jr. is he's pretty much the MVP on this 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 show. Mm. I think he's I think he's solid, and I think uh, it's really interesting to hear Larry hit the drums that hard because it's not really what he does anymore. Although he's still got that mil- military style, he still gives him a fair whack. But uh, I I tell you what I really noticed. Larry before a click track. Hmm. That, that it does sound. I mean, I like that live aspect. I like things sounding a little off. Yeah. Um. But man, is it noticeable? Once you know that he, hmm. you know, went to a click track and how rhythmic he became. This this is nowhere near that. But it doesn't. Um. I can see what you're saying there. Obviously, he gets more uniform as as time goes on. Um. I'd still say he's pretty. I mean, he's a lot better drummer than I am. I oh, he's so. pretty. Oh, he's he's solid, but uh, I I noticed that hmm. it's not as in time. It's but it's those little things that are slightly off that I think work really well. So I mean, I think actually the ocean is is good. In uh, although I said it's a bit of a weird opener, I like the fact that Bono's voice is slightly off in that in that particular uh, in this recording of it. Yeah, he sort of misses or kind of fluffs the lines a bit a bit early on, and then he becomes a lot more a lot more confident. Um, I will also say, in terms of Bono, he's really demonstrating here that in t- in TikTok, um, he's demonstrating that his capacity for reaching for notes that are actually beyond him. He's going for stuff that is is so it is so far beyond his natural comfort um, comfortable singing voice, and yet he manages to, to to nail it. Really, you can tell he's pushing himself. But in these early days, like Bono doesn't really sing; he's trying to sound like other other singers. We've talked about this before. Not as bad as the uh, David Bowie impression he does on uh, Street Mission, um, which is awful. Well, David will not be in the studio today with us because you know we, we, there's no dirty day for this season. So hmm. uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll see David when Songs of Experience comes out. Maybe so. But no, th- but I wanted to talk about Bono's voice actually, because um, when he right in these early days, not not in interviews. In in interviews, he has a lovely little thing Irish accent that you know we've we've come to know and love. Uh, when he's on stage, he almost he almost does this pseudo Paul McCart- Paul McCartney voice. Right, Angela Lansbury. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he'll be saying something. Well, thank you all for buying a ticket. Yeah, that's quite a good. You know, actually. and he doesn't. It's like <laughs> you're Irish. Why? Where's your accent gone? It's still there, but I know what you mean. He does. He does. Thank you for queuing out in the rain. You know that that was more Irish, but you know I should have left it at the first. Um, but yeah, what what happens to his voice? Why is he doing this? I think he's just trying to project his voice and sound clear and confident, and that's it. I think, and I don't know, I don't know. I've always found it a little bit kind of odd. Bono's voice, yeah, off mic. It annoys um, me that I've never heard any mention of it. No one seems to talk about it, you know. And it's it's such an obvious. He's still doing it when we talk about Red Rocks. 
Yeah. He's still doing it on there. Although I will say, Bono does sound, and I've always said this since the very first time I listened to it, it sounds Scottish when he says, Sing with me, this is forty. He sounds, <laughs> he sounds like he's saying, no, it's not that bad, but he does sound much more Scottish than Irish on that one. Yeah, it it just it just baffles me. When did Bono think, okay, so it, it's okay to be Irish now? I, I probably don't think it was that conf- conscious a decision. I think he probably just wanted to speak as like as project as clearly as possible. I'm not saying English is more clear than Irish. But, either. and I'll say this again, okay. why Paul McCartney? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe what, was... Why is he the inspiration of, you know, received pronunciation? Maybe he was solving murders and then writing about them. Um, Angela Lansbury. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think it's worth going to that... Um, that version of Street Mission where Bono does sound atrocious. And I think that is much more of an affectation or voice. You know, he's going, oh, no, 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 no. He sounds almost a bit like, I don't know, like a mixture between Bowie and Jagger and a few other things. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's It troubles me because we're only five years away from uh, the likes of Unforgettable Fire hmm. um, and A Sort of Homecoming. And those are really, you know... Th- I love those songs because Bono is, you know, so securely in his own voice that I have to wonder what some of these songs would have sounded like if he'd had the confidence to sing as he as he sings. I think Bono has said before that, you know, when when they first started off, he felt like he sang like a girl, so he was always trying to, you know, deepen his voice and Mm. and sound like uh, Joy Division, sound like, you know, those people with deep voices, other bands that I, I can't think of. But you know what I mean. That yeah. that general early eighties style David Bowie would be, you know, another name to throw out there. Well, I also think Bono, in the very very early days, when we're we're you know everyone's turning up and packing out Larry's mum's kitchen, Bono, I don't think was turning up to be the singer really. I think he basically just got stuck with that because he was the worst guitarist, and I mean, and, and he still is worse the worst than guitarist. Dick Evans. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I've I've not really listened to much of um of his kind of career. He's in the Virgin Prunes, isn't he? I'm not sure if he is. Isn't that Gavin Friday? Oh God! There's a lot of them. Like yeah. like the, the the back cat, the supporting cast of U2 in high school. There's quite a lot of them that all seem to have done something. Yeah. So it, it's hard village. to to know exactly who did what. I mean, back to the the Bono point. I guess circuitously, he didn't ever think of himself as an amazing singer. And just sort of pushed himself into that role until he occupied it, and then discovered that he had this amazing, amazing voice, really. So maybe that's what's going on in those in those kind of early recordings. So speaking of um, that initial practice in uh, in the in Larry's mum's kitchen, um, do you know why they called themselves the Feedback to begin with? It's just some early days trivia to be to you know to talk about. Was that, was that the only sound they could? Get out of the amplifier or something. It was it was Adam Clayton's amp that was apparently making a quite bad noise in that way. So that's why they were called the feedback, and then they switched the name to the hype. The hype, yeah. Um, and that was meant to be apparently kind of a, a sort of pseudo ironic kind of name, but then it just eventually looks quite self congratulatory and quite vain, really. And apparently, um, Adam phoned up um, the lead singer of the radiators steve rapid and adam said and he said to adam that name is basically not not subtle enough so you need to find something something different so you too is a lot more enigmatic as a as a, as a name i love the idea of uh, someone in a band called the radiators giving, <laughs> giving advice on the name of a band mm. 
that's that's true. It's worse than some of our ideas. But um, but it's. I mean, what do you? Th- we've not really talked about this. What do you think of that as a as a as a name? You too. I mean, one of the things that they said is it always looked bigger on the poster than any of the other acts because obviously it's just those two letters, so it's going to be bigger. I mean, it's clearly worked. It, hmm. You know, quite clearly it's worked. But if if I'm honest, what if you ask me why it's worked? I have no idea. I I. I don't know what is U two. I mean, I know it's you know a a a plane, a spy plane, a yeah. spy, you know a spy plane used in World War Two, but but it's not a reference to that because no. it's not like they have a picture of a spy plane on there. But it's yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I I think it's just one of the, by the time I got into U two, it's just that's just the name. That's just what they're called. You know, mm. it's not as if I was around for for boy when it came out. What what's this? Why are they called U two? You know, like yeah. so. I've I've just never I've never been in a position where you know where I can honestly question it because it was well, well established when I got into you too, but it's also very useful as a kind of pun because the amount of times that the I've, someone has said you two to me and they're going oh you too you know and, and kind of as because they know I like the band yeah it does come up quite a lot and it does feel um it does feel inclusive as well obviously it's kind of like you as well it's it's given them a, that name gave them an identity. You know, because mm. it is so unique. And in those early days, and I guess we'll, we can get on to the stage and the, uh, you know, kind of stagecraft, limited though it is for this early gig, for the stage, U2 works really well. I mean, use that I- iconic picture of U2 at the Dandelion Market um, where Bono's wearing some sort of mesh vest. It looks a bit more punky, actually. Yeah, I've, I- I've made some notes about the attire that the, <laughs> the, the band were. Well, should we get on to, should we, should we have a chat about the attire then? Should we talk about the swag? Yeah. That's what I'm calling this second. Is right? Okay. Why do I think of the hamburger when you say that? Because he burgles hamburgers. He had, well, he, he, had, he had the swag bag, but I think it already had burgers written on it. Yeah. Or a McDonald's branded swag bag. You know what do they expect if they leave that hanging around? Is this part of your new like stand-up set? <laughs> <laughs> no. Can Can you read out some of your stand-up stand-up no, material on this? No. I, although I will just say, uh, just to clarify, <laughs> just going back to what I just said. I realised that I said that the hamburgerist robs hamburgers. He doesn't. He robs restaurants which sell hamburgers. Let's go on to the <laughs> swag. Um, so, Bono, as you've said, fishnet shirt, leather pants. Yeah. It's a brave guy that goes out wearing that. But he wasn't wearing that at the marquee, was he, by this point? Uh, I... Don't know if he was. I, I don't. You I, can't really see from the picture on the front no. of the can you? Really, it's sort of a punky Susie Sue sort of look, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um. But general things that they wore around this time. Uh, Adam and Edge actually seem to get it together a little bit and and mm-hmm. match up. Well, Adam, for example, white jeans, black top, and sneakers. Yeah. Classic, right? classic look. Edge, white trousers. There is a difference there. Uh, slim fit, tur- uh, black slim fit turtleneck. Yeah, no, cool. Like a sort of fifties existentialist. I- and I'm imagining he was wearing Converse even back then. I uh, maybe. I always thought Edge wore quite, you know, kind of um, pointed black shoes. Oh, he wore boots for like later on. I mean, that's yeah, next episode. That's but... next episode. Uh, spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, Edge also in in a video online. Um, I think it is Street Mission. Yes, it is Street Mission. He's wearing what can only be described as a chef's outfit. He looks like an idiot. I'm pretty sure it's Street Mission. Does he have an apron on? No, he's got one of those... 
Oh, is it Street Mission or is it or is it or is it Stories for Boys or something like that? It's one of those really early performances. You know, it might be the very first I mean, performance. That chef's hat could come in handy these days. <laughs> he's not wearing the actual chef's hat, <laughs> but he's wearing a chef's jacket and. Um, yeah, doesn't look great. But to be fair, they did—they didn't have lots of money to spend on 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 stuff back then. Right, Johnny, would you like to guess what Larry Mullen Jr. is wearing? Um, white t-shirt and blue jeans. Yes. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> why is that? Why, so why is why is it, why are you finding <laughs> that so amusing? Because I'm pretty sure we're going to run through this for every single tour, and I'm pretty sure that. Larry is always just going to be wearing denim and uh, a white t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not—he's not one for changing up the look, and he's—he's he's always been a bit resistant to wacky costumes um, as as things have gone on. I mean, you can tell from the dance on—you uh, <coughs> can tell from the dance on Disco Tech that he's not the one into it. So that's what they're wearing. Um, uh, it's hard. This is a harder question at this point, uh, but. With the set list, and I'll read it out now. Uh, the Ocean, 11 o'clock TikTok, I Will Follow, Ancat Dub, Into the Heart, A Day Without Me, The Electric Co, Things to Make and Do, Stories for Boys, Boy Girl, and finally Out of Control. Are there any songs that you would take off here? Uh, any any of those early, early songs that, you know, that you'd rather listen to than any of, any of this? Obviously, we're going to take off Things to Make and Do because it's tripe. What? It is tripe. I like that song. I I really think that's a good song, and I like. I actually think they should have come out to this. This would have been the, be- the better song to open with. An instrumental. Yeah, of course. Bono's not on this. You come out right. The lads are out there. They start playing. It's, it starts off it really well, like you know, gets everyone hyper. It's terrible. And then Bono runs out. It's terrible. How are you? It's Bono here. Oh, how are you? It's 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 Bono here. Ringo yeah. couldn't make it. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's. I don't know why Paul McCartney's now a brummy. No, I'm confused. This whole whole thing is confused. <laughs> so yeah, which songs would you take off? Oh, and well, there's so few songs here. Um, I wouldn't take any of them off. I mean, I do think. I think the worst, the ocean is the worst performed. I think there were 14 songs recorded this night. These are the, the 10, best ones. ten that made the cut. Um, Stories for Boys is absolutely amazing on this, and I'm I'm amazed that how much of a sound that one guitar can make and obviously i i love the edge but it, it's really impressive that you can create that huge sound and at this point i would say edge pretty much is the defining factor in 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 the band's sound he doesn't play like anyone else at this particular at this particular point if you go back to those early tv performances where edge gets an extended solo again i think in street mission um he's not very good though he's not really developing his style but here he seems to have comfortably arrived at a, a great style, um, mm. particularly with you know the, the, the delay and the reverb and everything like that. What would you uh, take off? Um, I would take off any song that isn't on Boy. Right. Okay. So because wait. this is a tour for the album, and maybe those are the songs that you know they were, you know they were they were playing on the tour, but they also played, you mm. know, the, the, the songs from Boy. But this isn't a live release, is it? I mean, it's not no, that back then a release. No, it's not, and I understand you know that they've just they've added some tracks because some people will never have heard these tracks live before. Mm. But th- that's also true of songs that are on Boy. So yeah, I, I, I would I would rather have heard a, have this be called Boy Live because 
recording, official recordings from that time are so sparse to come across. I, w- I would have liked to hear Boy live, maybe in its entirety. Well, I think what you get in here is a, a really interesting document of the stuff that was potentially available to put on Boy. And yeah, I would definitely rather have 11 o'clock TikTok and, and indeed things to make and do be on Boy rather than um, uh, Shadows and, and Tall Trees, which I, I really don't like as a song. Um, I think it's very underdeveloped. Yeah, I, I I just have a problem with... I, I, I want it to be more of the songs, the promoting, rather than... Hmm. But, I mean, something like Boy Girl, right? That's not a very well-put-together song, I, I would argue. It's a very enthusiastic song, and I'm glad we've got the live version of it, because I think what you get here is, again, stuff that is very relevant to Boy and to the subject matter of Boy. And... It just depends what I mean. Maybe they did try to record some of these with um, with Lily White, and it just went. Well, this isn't actually the best the best thing to do here. Um, well, you know, Lily Ni- Lily White doesn't always know best. Um, you know, on Twitter he's called Silly White. He's a he's a, he's a joker, that guy, isn't he? When he's not selling. Um, um, no shadows and tall trees, which shouldn't disappoint us because we hated it. Well, I just think it, it maybe it'd be better to hear that live. Um, it's, it's bad on record. No, another time, another place. What? No, another time, another place. It's the last song, isn't it? No, Out of Control is the last song. Mm, are you sure? I'm very sure. <laughs> why? Why have you written a review of it? No, I just I, have you written a review of a song you haven't heard. I was very sure that that was on there, and also why would they put it on the and. Are you, are you looking at the uh, the vinyl online? I'm looking at the set list, which I wrote down earlier. I know that I'm, and I know there's ten tracks. I've just counted. I've not missed one out. Mm. Another Time, Another Place mm. is not on this record. Mm. Just trying to th- figure out uh, what else. Twilight? Wasn't, wasn't played. No. So Twilight, Another Time, Another Place, and Shadows and Tall Trees are the ones that are missing off the album. This number four, another time, another place. What? Although no, that's, that's Bono talking about. That's it. Bono talking about it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so to clarify, we don't have the actual song "Another Time, Another Place" here, which is kind of weird. What we do have on disc four is Bono remembering the Marquee Club, and obviously that fits as a title for that memory. A reason why this might not be on the actual release, as in the actual song Another Time, Another Place, um, could be because it wasn't very good. Um, so Gavin Martin says, As musical craftsmen, drummer Larry, guitarist The Edge, and bassist Adam use a cudgel where they should use a chisel. So he does a review which is very, very favourable in general, but he makes this kind of criticism and Tim of the sloppiness. So it probably wasn't a very good recording, and that's why it's on there. Um, so that's cleared that up. Although it's, I still think it's a bit weird to call it that and then not actually have the song on there. But there we go. Uh, at this point, I'm not surprised by anything you two do. But I do like that at that point in time, they would only record one show. Like most live shows that you've seen, you know, DVDs or CDs, whatever, they are normally recorded over two, three nights. And then the, the final product that you get mm. is a collection. Like a best of. Yeah, a best of collection of, of all the shows. Uh, for example, if you, we we will talk about this in a few episodes, but uh, the Slain Castle show, mm. uh, people who have watched it hundreds of times, like me, um, will notice that in different shots, Bono is stood in a different place, 
the, 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 the it's a different time of, of day. You know, one, one show was a little bit earlier. They get they came on later the next night because it's hmm. um, it was darker. You know, it's it's things like that. But you know, it, it back in back in 1980, obviously, probably, maybe they couldn't afford to record two shows. Yeah, it is expensive, and we'll definitely get onto this next week. Um, making a live album is a gamble, basically, at this point. And maybe this is just a recording off the desk, so it wouldn't have been, you know, incredibly expensive. But nonetheless, I like the fact we've got one document here. I wonder here. if it was intended for release at that point, because even at this point, Bono's pushing them as a live band, which, you know, is undoubtable, they definitely are. Hmm. So I do wonder if this was was slated for release at some point. I suppose the thing is, not only recording but releasing albums is also expensive. Yeah. And I mean, it's it is interesting that though because it, around the early days there was actually even a discussion that you two would be a band that didn't actually make records; they just would be a live a live band. And obviously, that idea got thrown out eventually, mm-hmm. and for, for good reason. But that is fascinating that they are such an uh, so dedicated to the live sound, and I think that's. It's arguably a good thing that they didn't have a breakthrough single early on, because then they could have just got, you know, stuck on top of the pops and chewed up really quickly. Um, whereas they actually took their time. They've got fantastic songs, but not really, not really single kind of poppy, you know, radio friendly ones early on, and certainly not, um, certainly not anything before war really pushed them in in that kind of way. Is this then a, a an album? that is promoting the tour or a tour that's promoting the album. I always find mm. that find that very interesting. Do they release an album to get people to buy a ticket to go and see a show or do they tour to get people to buy an album? I think at the moment it's all about getting a following in, in London really and getting getting a, a kind of a, a base really um, in a really good fan base solid there. So um, interestingly enough, a quote from the Edge on, on that one here. After two visits to the city, this series of marquee shows gave us the beginning of a true London-based following. It was the perfect place for you two to play, and the legacy of the place became a spur to get us onto the next level. By the end of a month, we were just a better band. Okay, I like the fact that Edge has a nice, solid, clear, um, no-nonsense quote there, whereas Bono's goes on for <laughs> ages and ages, and atrocious grammar. Like, really, like, there's, there's capital letters everywhere, uh, ellipsis all over the place. Three. Um, Where did he write this or speak it? Well, it's on. It's on the um, on you know the actual album. So obviously yeah. you want to keep yours nice and pristine. But you yeah, can see. It, it, it will not be coming out of its condom. Okay, it's a protective sheath. Fair enough. Um, so you can have a look at obviously what what Bono's uh, what Bono's wrote, but it's um, I'm giving it a C minus for for grammar here. Um, but he does he does capture the kind of the, the heart of the of the gig here. Um, he talks very kind of dispiritingly about himself. Obviously, he's very nice um, about the rest of the band. Edge's guitar parts as angular as his chin, <laughs> and it has to be said quite a lot of her. I think he's talking about himself though, than being mean about Edge's baldness though. <laughs> Larry's high energy, relentless martial percussion, beating up the crowd and kicking me up the arse. And this is before crack was known in the area. What is Vano talking about in this? He's such no one edits his his work. <laughs> he 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 does often speak like a man who's fallen literally hundreds of feet. Yeah. <laughs> Toppled off. Um another thing to, I guess to say about this is this is still a young green Christian band as well, playing in Soho, which was um they all 
walked through the red light district apparently and were kind of agog at all these all these kind of women and things like that. So well, that's interesting because I saw a an interview. I think it was an interview uh, with Bono by Johnny Carson, um, mm. old time American interviewer and comedian, uh, and. He he asked Bono about his faith, and he said, "Well, yeah, we're religious, but we have we don't we just have a personal faith. It's not it's not something we, you know, write songs about and you no. know like shout about like like Gloria. Oh, boy, how did that change? You know, yeah. Well, when was it? Was this in the boy day? Before... This was before October. So yeah, I think that's it's really fascinating to talk about that whole um, era because I didn't really realize how isolated." Uh, Clayton was at that point so hugely yeah. yeah and reading um I, I, and I would recommend again Unforgettable Fire for this uh, Eamon Dunphy's book um you can basically read I think I do have that actually it's a good book um the sections were they're all praying at the back of the bus and they're literally sectioned off away from Adam who's just opportunity sat there just sort of twiddling his thumbs really not having not, a smoke yeah, you know, being, maybe has a lady friend with him. Being cool. Well, that wouldn't have been appropriate, would it? I mean, for 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 the for the band. And actually, weirdly, that is that's a really good point to bring up. I think it can be quite easy to be very negative about U 2s Christianity at this point, and neither of us um, are believers in any sense at all. But it, one thing that it was useful for, even if it did stifle some of their creativity, and that was you know the whole point. They got to I mean edge nearly quit the band. He, well, he did quit the band and then luckily was persuaded back into it. Um, they don't exploit their fans in any way here. They're always interested in connecting with them on as personal level as possible. That's why Bono's always jumping in the crowd and, and trying to connect with them with his with his voice. But they also, they don't exploit people in terms of ticket prices and things like that. Obviously, they, they can't really do much um, early on, but they also don't take advantage of groupies and things like that, which is which in the seventies and and eighties would have been would have been sort of de rigueur, really. You know, a lot of people would have been doing that kind of thing. So I think if if there is something to be said um, for that whole kind of shalom era, it kept them from making some stupid early decisions that young men in their position may have made. Yeah, which I think is useful. Speaking of uh, ridiculous ticket prices, what is the cheapest you've paid? For a an act that went on to charge, you know, upwards say upwards of forty quid or ridiculous amounts. Um, interesting question. It, mm, I don't know actually. I'm trying to think of someone who I saw when they were really um, early on. Mm. I mean, how how much was U2 Vertigo? Fifty. Uh, Fifty. Fifty-five, I think. Yeah, something like that. I think they keep a reasonable ticket price. Um, but what about you? Um. Oh, in terms of the band, um, I saw Catfish and the Bottlemen a, a couple of years ago, and it was like seven fifty a ticket. That's good. And and now they're you know like charging thirty odd, and I just think you know once you pay seven pound for something, you really don't want to start paying you know those kind of prices. No. So I don't think I actually don't think I'll go and watch them again because in my mind I know I I I really like them. I know they you know they have a lot of detractors, but I I think uh, personally. In my mind, I don't want to pay more than seven pound fifty to go and watch them now, because that's that's the value of their ticket. But haven't they grown as a band, and won't they be giving you a better show? Uh, yeah, I mean they are a very very good live act. They 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 do remind me of a young U two in that the you know they're very hungry, very angry. I mean that they'd probably hate that comparison to U two, but they uh, 
for an English rock band, they're, they're pretty good. You know, I think they're going to be the next stadium band mm. that this country produces. Yeah, although I will say that sometimes a band will it'll start to blossom and then never really come to fruition. I yeah. thought Vida were going to be massive, um, but they weren't. Maybe they they remind me more of Oasis than uh, of of U two, but hmm. I think that I think they've got what it takes if they steer the course and you know keep their noses clean. Best of luck, lads. Um, <laughs> I also want to say cheers to Grant Nicholas for for liking um, our, our uh, review twos. Uh, I think we said well said Grant because he did he did a very favourable um, interview about the Joshua Tree and said that it was great and yeah he liked it. So cheers. Grant. So maybe maybe Grant uh, maybe he's listening. But I doubt it, but it'd be nice if he was. And also, I didn't mean to imply that Feeder is not a great band. They're just not. They they, they never were, went stratospheric, you know, like like you two. No, I, really, I expected them to. Yeah. Uh, and I, actually, I'm glad because they they're still producing e- excellent music. That last album's amazing. Yeah, I, I really like the, the the track you showed me. This is review Feeder. <laughs> um. So, anything more to say about you two's kind of? early period here no i think we've covered that but and i know i think it'd be just to you know wrap up just to like talk about what happens over the next couple couple of years there's not an an, a, a, an officially released recording until red rocks now hmm. so so while this tour is still going on they'll be writing for october obviously getting really involved in the shalom group hmm. um then october will come out they toured a lot with October, like they they did a serious amount of touring. I, I did I, I did say the an original figure when we reviewed October, but that um that was an extensive and grueling tour, and there was you know problems within the band. And then out the other side of that, you get War, which really finishes off the. The trilogy of the first three albums, and I think there is a, a nice, good story there. Hmm. Um, so, what happened during that time? Between, between yeah, this and like in, in terms of like you know, you two playing live. Well, you two go on on. Um, I mean, they have a, a successful you major, you know, the first major U.S. tour in 1981 in in March, um, and. I think American audiences really took. Was that to headline? Um, yeah, it was their tour. Yeah, it was their tour. I think. I mean, they did support other other acts. So they did arena tour support for. Um, I, I'm not going to say this because I've never heard of them before. The Jay Giles Band, apparently. Um, so. So they they did their own tour in America, and this is again where we get that kind of division between mm-hmm. Adam and the rest of the band, and it's at that point between Portland and Seattle on the tour where Bono loses a briefcase containing money but also more importantly all the lyrics for october so that's a major spanner in the works i mean and you you wonder how different october would have been as an album if that hadn't have happened really um they had really good shows at the palladium in new york um the tour ended well and i think american audiences liked them and again i'm kind of going back to um my research here they liked them because you two weren't condescending in the way that a lot of sneering um, European bands were to US audiences. Um, America, if we're painting in really broad strokes, is a lot more of a kind of um, expansive, outward-facing. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not say naive. What's the word that I'm looking for? Like a good way to, you know, 
wear the heart on the sleeve, you know. And that works. That yeah, works I with mean, you two here. Again, watching another interview with Bono, he talks about how when uh, particularly British acts go over to America, hmm. it's like they get there and go, "Oh, we're here," you know, "we're the we're the, we're the greatest thing you've ever seen." Yeah, another and, invasion. Yeah, and and basically try and be the Beatles or what the Beatles are perceived to have done, but I don't think mm. the Beatles actually did do that. And and Bono is like, when we came here, we just felt at home and, and felt like, you know, we want this, this place can teach us something mm. and we can learn something, you know, from, from this. So the gift was America having us. Now, it, it didn't sound that cringy when Bono said it in the early 80s, but imagine Bono saying that now. It would be, you know, so pumped up with hyperbole that it, it would just, it would be awful, you know. It would be like your dad, you know, telling you he's proud of you, that kind of thing, you know, and you, you just feel kind of uncomfortable, like, meh. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's just in my family. It's a different context now, isn't it? I mean, um, but I guess now a lot of Americans might be seeing Bono was condescending, coming over, telling them that they, they were wrong to, you know, elect Trump and all that kind of thing. Um, maybe not my dad telling me he's proud of me. Maybe my dad telling me he likes my shoes. That that would make me feel uncomfortable. Well, that's never happened to me, but fair enough. <laughs> um, so yeah, they they do have this kind of special relationship with 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 America at this time, and I think the the sowing they're sowing some useful seeds that they will reap later on when um when they do keep coming back, and obviously then they break onto the scene with with Joshua Tree later on. Um, but there is there is a, a major upset in the band, and in November they all come up to McGuinness and say we're so dedicated to the Shalom Group that we actually don't want to be in we don't want to tour October. So they've made the actual album, but then they're saying we we don't want to we don't want to tour it. And this was a division that they'd faced. They couldn't they couldn't work their head around this dilemma of how do you reconcile the rock and roll lifestyle with, with Christianity, which demands that you surrender this form of Christianity, at least demanded the surrender of the self to Christianity and being a rock star doesn't really square with that, or at least didn't for the band. So McGuinness talks them out of it in quite a clever way by saying, he basically appeals to their Christian values. He says, if you do this, then think of all of the people who are relying on you Think about all the people who depend on you as an act and as and for the for jobs and all the effort that they put in. You can't just take that away from people, or at least you can't just take it away from them straight away. It's unfair and it's actually unchristian. I don't know if he said it's unchristian, but I think that's a, a clever way of, of, of getting around that problem. Um, so it's really serious, this, um, but they managed to square it. Yeah. But they grow as a band, don't they? Over the, you know, over, Certainly, yeah. over these. And, and October maybe... Yeah, wasn't as successful as you know everybody hoped, but it you know it it, it certainly car- you know carried the momentum forward. Yeah. Uh, and then when War came along, like we discussed, really good track. Um, so it it there should be just over two years, about two and a half years between this and what we're going to discuss in the next episode, Red Rocks. Hmm. Um. That just, just I can't even imagine the journey that they took at that point. But the two seem so distinct and so different. Mm. And Red Rocks is no secret became just the symbol of the eighties for you know a, a certain type of MTV viewer. Yeah, uh, you can't deny how important that recording, that show is. 
Um, and it's and, so iconic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in 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 more in, I think it's still you can still see it. The, the videos still pop up. Uh, on you know mainstream rock shows, so that's that's where they went, hmm. and it's well, well, it's hard to talk about it without actually you know diving into a, a review. Um, but I think I appreciate this recording another time, another place, because that's where they got to, hmm. because that's how they progressed, and because that's where you know where they ended up i think it's it's just amazing to me that you can get you can develop so much as an act as a singer as a as a band mm. and yet all those elements that make them essentially you two are present there there is the enthusiasm there's the the passion for that there's not necessarily the best musicianship there but they they are going for it and that's what makes them such an individual band they're not sneering they are open and coming towards the crowd and saying, join in with us, you know. And like we said at the beginning, they they do that because they treat it like a, a like a job, like a business, like an you know, a nine to five. There there was such an essential uh this ideology within the band of like, you know, we've got to be recording the next album, we've got to be doing these you know, X many shows, we've got to be going over here to do this, over there to do that. It, it was all so calculated uh, that it, it paid off, and uh, that is not the way people see rock and roll, and it certainly wasn't the way people saw rock and roll in the eighties. Yeah. They're kind of revolutionary in that. Yeah, although I would say I'd probably prefer sort of effective and structured rather than calculated. Calculated sounds a bit like Bond villain, evil kind of thing. But yeah, I see what you mean. I think um, it goes back again to good choices with with management as well, and also not screwing each other over in terms of the way the money was was divided yeah so that's what i think keeps them together and you can tell i mean paul mcginnis's ambition was to break an irish band onto the scene you know to really send someone stratospheric and eventually that's what that's what he achieved but i think it comes down to yeah good choices um being very careful about who they pick to do various various jobs and and yeah treating it yeah like a business but also a bit like a family as well which maybe is why they didn't break up when when that when that crisis point came in in um, after October. So earlier on, I mentioned that um, Gavin Martin reviewed this gig and made a few critical comments um, about the band, but overall he was massively enthusiastic. And I think this is a good place to um, to leave this episode and look forward to the next. So at the end of his review, Gavin Martin says about the um, the marquee gig. He says. An inverted hippieism. You two are not far out. They are near in. Closer to the heartbeat, closer to the senses, and closer to the soul. They can get wiser, stronger, and better. My advice is simple. Keep on pushing. So, we'll see how you two manage to keep on pushing next week with Under a Blood Red Sky. Yeah, so uh, we hope you've enjoyed the first episode of... uh, Review to live, live, yeah. yeah. What, uh, that, uh, people think we're doing a live show, as if I mean, I mean, it is live for us. Yeah. Uh, but people seem to. I'm think, very aware. I don't of that know. Fact. I don't know who they think you know we'd be selling tickets to. Like who? Who the hell would turn up to listen to us talk about you two? Yeah. You know. Like, so yeah. Um, next week we'll be back with. We'll be kicking things off with. 
under a blood red, uh, red sky, uh, under a blood red sky, and yep. making our way towards uh, the whatever we can find of the unforgettable, unforgettable fire tour, uh, yeah. and particularly live aid. Not sure how much of that will fit into one episode, uh, but the idea is to try and cover at least a couple of years to show some development hmm. in in U two's. A live show and live music. Um, oh, that's another question. You know, I was going to ask you at this point. Do you see this as a gig or a show so far? Interesting. Um, so at this point, you two, and this is mentioned actually in you two show. At this very early point, they're obviously not able to um, put loads and loads of money into scenery, into costumes, into being on marks into you know acting out little little things however as as is mentioned in in u2 show at every single point in their career u2 have been aware of the stage so even though it's not the coolest most punk thing to be you know we're you know wearing lots and lots of costumes i mean that's more yes and you know all the prog kind of dinosaurs that u2 wanted to get away from as uh, in general even though um they're not doing that they're still aware of the stage set that's why again you know they've got a big clear stage u2 written really big um and you do have those moments like bono going a bit mad in uh in electrico so this is a gig i would say overall it's not yet a show but it's close and there's indications of that what would you say uh i i would say it's a gig uh but i wouldn't say it's close i would say it's pretty far away all right, <laughs> from, from being from being a show, yeah. you know, maybe we can say gig concert show, you know, maybe that would be the. Wait, what's the difference between a gig and a concert? I don't know. A gig just seems like you know a little like a smaller venue to me. Well, let, let's just simplify by <laughs> saying gig or show, because I mean, this yeah. sounds like it's going to be the equivalent of our. Uh, is this a is this a flipping album or not? You know. Yeah. All right. So fine. is this a flipping show? I say no. You say. Uh no, but I would really like to be there. Oh yeah. Um, and also, out of the review two time machine, yeah. Uh, finally caught up with it. Uh, inside, I have uh two tickets. Right. Uh, one has your name on it, and mm-hmm. one has my name on it. Yeah. Now, according to these tickets, we, i.e., <laughs> one of us, mm. can go to any show we want. Right. So at some point in this season. You're going to have to say, Tyler, I'm cashing in my ticket, lad. Yeah, that sounds and, just like me as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then you go, oh, really, Johnny? Are you going to that show then? And uh, that's what I'll say. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> You have to say that word yeah, for word. Yeah, but you only have voice. one ticket. You can only use it once, uh, and Good. it's entirely up to you which show you you know use it for. So I assume you'll be using it for the marquee gig, yeah? Uh, no, I will not be oh. using it for that because oh. that, as we said, is a gig, not a show. So I would love to have been there. It would have been fascinating, but I am not going to cash in my ticket this week. Okay, very northern then for some reason. Anyway, um, but that's good. That's like a sort of a, a ticking, a ticking clock. Um, we can wonder a ticket clock when yes, when <laughs> when each of us are going to uh, are going to use our magical ticket. Um, so we don't have to go together then. No, no. Oh good. So are you going to be are you going to be sitting or standing at these? I will be sitting, of course. Ridiculous. I can't even for. Like... Well, it depends which one I go to because okay. I don't know which one I'm going to. Well, we can we can talk about that and then what snacks we'll get at halftime and all that other kind of stuff there. Um, great. So we will be back uh, next week and we will be doing 
probably a bit more of a focus show from now on because we've actually got footage you know to look at so we can talk in a little bit more depth about the costumes the scenery all the stagecraft um yeah i'm excited i'm excited for yeah, you live. i think it's gonna be a good season uh so once again thank you very much for joining us and for continuing the journey from innocence to experience we do hope you'll join us again next week but for now from me tyler and from him johnny <laughs> thank you very much and we'll see you next week bye Hi there, thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us on facebook.com forward slash review 2 you or on soundcloud.com forward slash review 2 or search for the Review 2 podcast on iTunes. You can also email us at review2contact at gmail.com. Please like, comment and subscribe. Thank you.